This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. People often ask how they can support more great stories from The Wild. And thank you. That's awesome. We really appreciate you asking. The Wild is a a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio. And you can support this vital work by checking out our show notes. um, Because there you'll find information about supporting my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Help fuel the next adventure. Okay. Enjoy the episode, you guys. Right here. I'm at a very special place, a wildlife refuge in Southern California. So we're creeping in to see if we can get a glimpse using this the building here at the facility is like is like cover so we can sneak up on it. Hopefully it won't fly away. I'm here with some biologists from the US Fish and Wildlife Service. So we're gonna try to walk this way and then come at an angle to sneak in. I love this. We quietly tiptoe our way across a dry, grassy field using the building as cover. It's attached to a fence structure that's used to capture endangered condors. And this is my chance to see one for the first time. But they're timid. We walk into the building to get a good look at it through the window. I bring my binoculars up to my eyes and there he is. A giant male on top of an animal carcass. The condor is feasting on the carcass left out to draw them into the research facility here. Oh, good old chick. Oh, he's taking off. Yeah, stretching those massive wings. That's awesome. What a sight. <laughs> yeah, it's like when it's compared to the ravens. Oh, my God. The ravens look like sparrows. <laughs> <laughs> that really does put it into perspective. Mm-hmm. This place was built to help biologists monitor the condition of these condors to perform health checks. The California condor population has been on the edge of extinction for decades. It's been a constant battle for conservationists to keep this bird from blinking out. These creatures are so iconic, I feel like I'm meeting a bit of a movie star. They were one of the first 78 species listed on the original endangered species list in 1967. And they are still on it. That's 55 years of living on the edge. But seeing one, I was struck with the resiliency and magic of these birds. Condors are huge. They have a nine-foot wingspan and a bald, orange, pumpkin-like head. I would describe a California condor as a big, goofy black bird. They are North America's biggest bird. Long white triangles that look like they've been painted down the underside of their wings. And giant feathers that fan out at the tips like huge, outstretched flamenco dancer fingers. They look like planes. They're just incredible. When you see them flying, they're, the way they soar, um, it's just unreal. It's like you're looking back in time. I kind of sometimes think of them as like pterodactyls in the sky. They are, like flying dinosaurs. But today, their future lies at the mercy of a hidden threat. Mortality signals revealed that it was dead. 
It had high levels of lead. The light went on. That was it. Lead. And it's poisoning them. But these birds have brought together a curious team of people who love them. And they are doing everything they can to make sure that they're around for not just another 55 years, but well beyond all of us. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. So it's just hike down, we'll just hike down this little hill. Again, watch the snakes. I'm here in the hills of Southern California at Bitter Creek Wildlife Refuge with condor biologist Laura McMahon. She's taken me to a special location. We set up a couple of spotting scopes to see what we can see. So we've got the big boulders that have shadows, right? We're all, we're all in accord with what that is. Yeah. So if you go up from it, um, there is... Oh, there's like a... Okay, the rock that you're talking about that's cast in a shadow with two small rocks underneath it. Exactly. Where is it next to that? Where is it in comparison it's, to that? It's that. Oh, it is that? Yeah, that's it. It's a condor nest. I was expecting something a bit more grand, but no twigs, no branches. It's just a bit of shade under a boulder but it's smack dab in some of the most important condor habitat that exists. The nest is about 150 yards below us, down a windy cliff, part of a drama that's revolved around these birds. The person in charge of condor recovery in Southern California is Ariana Panzalan. She focuses in her own spotting scope. Now can I find the nest? Ariana has been working on condors her entire career with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I am not a bird nerd, uh, contrary to popular belief. If anybody sees a bird, all my friends and family, they're like, what bird is this? And I can identify them through Google, but I couldn't <laughs> identify them otherwise. Condors, not, on the other hand. Condors, on the other hand, I know easy. a lot about. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot about one, one bird. Condors are known as nature's cleanup crew. They eat dead things. They only eat dead things. Their job in the ecosystem is to clean up carcasses on the landscape. Condors are super important and overlooked because, you know, they're so characterized as, as evil or ominous um, vultures and cartoons are always scheming and plotting and waiting for things to die. There's no sign of the bird at the nest, but Ariana wastes no time. She's keen to tell me more about the role these giant birds play. Really, vultures and, and condors are such important parts of the ecosystem. What is that helping in the ecosystem when you've got a clean-up crew like a condor there? Yeah, it helps mostly prevent disease, which is really nice, and uh, nu nutrient recycling. So when, um, when vultures are around, they can find uh, carcasses much faster than other species can. So they find carcasses really quickly and can consume them before harmful bacteria grows and can spread through other scavengers, especially mammalian scavengers like coyotes or hyenas over um, in Africa. 
In other words, the voracious appetites of condors and other vultures around the world keep other animals from getting sick. A deer carcass that's weeks old can be riddled with bacteria that would make most animals quite sick, but a condor's stomach has a very low pH. It's so acidic they can eat disease-causing bacteria and destroy them with the power of their gut. Way back in the day, there was a study where they had vultures eat um, carcasses that had diseases in them, and they destroyed anthrax, like the pathogen that causes anthrax. California condors have perfectly evolved into a machine for eating dead animals. Eyesight that can spot food from huge distances away. Wings that carry them for hours at a time over hundreds of miles to search, often to 15,000 feet high. Right down to a bald head that makes for easy cleanup. Just wipe it on a rock to get the blood off. But it's the condor's digestive system that's core to their life. But despite all these well-honed physical marvels, for decades the condor population was crashing. They were once found right across Western North America. There were thousands of them. But as settlers arrived in the West, they started killing large predators. Fewer predators meant fewer predator kills for condors to clean up. By the 1960s, condors were only found in California. Their numbers were getting smaller and smaller. The question was why? It's been illegal to kill a condor for nearly a hundred years. The threat was more insidious. Not a bullet from a gun, but more the lead from a bullet from a gun. And so um, condors will eat small pieces of lead that's embedded throughout an animal's body and those small pieces of lead will um, can become poisonous. And so that's condor's main threat today. Lead ammunition. When a hunter makes a kill, they butcher the animal like a deer, and they leave behind guts, bones, and often hundreds of tiny fragments of lead bullet embedded in the carcass, from the bullet basically shattering on impact. And of course, when a condor finds a carcass, a gut pile like this, it's feast time. That super acidic stomach means they can eat the whole thing, including the lead fragments. Lead is a soft metal, and condors have such strong, um, they have such acidic stomachs that they, it degrades and breaks down that lead really quickly when it's in their digestive system. So it absorbs into their blood a lot, a lot quicker than other, other animals. Mm. It's the number one threat to condors. And the effects of lead are devastating. One of the worst of them is called cropsteasis. Like a lot of birds, condors have a crop, a balloon-like pouch that's part of their digestion system. They fill it up with food, and it helps them push it down into their stomach. On a condor, the crop can hold up to three pounds of food. But if a bird has high levels of lead poisoning, the crop stops working. Laura says this means the bird can't digest the food. So it kind of just sits in this pouch almost, um, and they can't digest it. So it just sits there, it gets like rotted, and it'll get really enlarged. Sometimes they also get really thirsty, so if they like drink water, and it's just this like, just this sack, and, and they're trying so hard to eat, but they're starving to death because they're just not processing it. And it's a pretty horrible way to go. 
Ariana has been working with Condors for almost a decade now. She sees firsthand how ugly this battle with lead can get for these birds. What does it look like when a condor has lead poisoning? Is that it must be a nasty thing to witness? Yeah, it's it's honestly heartbreaking. Um, I haven't been out in the field for so long, so now I'm like having to recall the memories of seeing birds out in the fields and going to recover them when they're so sick. Um, it's really debilitating. They they lose motor functions because it it affects their nervous system, so they lose motor skills and they become uh, really unstable and they can fall, you know, start stumbling on the ground. And even seeing condors on the ground is horrible. I mean, they're, they're meant to be soaring in the sky. So when you see a condor on the ground and it's struggling to stand up and its eyes are drooping and its wings are drooping, it's heartbreaking and you can you can see they're trying to fight for their lives <laughs> oh my god i didn't i didn't expect to get so emotional it's okay um, getting me there as well <laughs> it's um um it's hard seeing <clears throat> them get sick um and yeah they they kind of just get resigned to to being in your care um some can fight still but it's hard seeing it um yeah, especially when you get used to seeing really lively birds that are fighting and, you know, not not wanting to be handled. But when you see birds that are really sick, it's hard. Ariana and Laura are part of a team that now captures the California condors regularly, including at the facility here. They run blood tests on every condor in this area twice a year to monitor lead levels in their system. It's a problem that's been around a long time. The poisoning got so bad that by the 1980s, there were only 22 birds left in the wild. To try and save them, condors had been tagged, wild eggs collected and incubated, but the numbers had crashed, from thousands historically, down to these 22 individuals. And when that happened, that's when the condor biologists decided that we need to save this species. We're going to trap every wild bird and bring them into, into captivity for um, a breeding program and hopefully release them back out on the landscape. But of course, how to capture 22 condors was the question, and it's become quite a legendary story. We're standing at the location right now. It's just a small area of gravel on this grassy slope, but in 1987, this is where a biologist dug a pit, like a shallow grave basically, and just sat there, motionless and camouflaged, covered with debris and dirt, for hours. They would sit in that pit from before sunrise to just before sunset, waiting for condors to come feed on a carcass that was right next to the pit. The condor would see the carcass, cruise down, and land just a few feet away. And when it did, an observer up the hill would radio the biologist hiding in the pit. And when a bird would would come and start feeding on the carcass, a biologist would either grab their legs or they would use a net gun to capture the birds. Either way, it sounds messy. 
It was 1987. 21 condors were caught, and then finally the 22nd, named AC-9. It was the last free California condor, which meant that the species was now officially extinct in the wild. They were transported to two California zoos to breed in captivity, and it marked the beginning of a massive effort to grow their numbers and bring them back. And by 1992, condors were re-released out in the wild, starting um, down in this area, and then up in Big Sur, and out in Arizona, and then Pinnacles was the, was the last release site. Um, they're also released in Baja, California. And so Quite a we went, journey. Yeah, we went from 22 birds in the wild, and now we're up to around 300. It worked, from 22 to 300. But condors still hang in the balance, especially when the main threat to them in the wild is still out there. Maybe I'm just so hopeful that my eyes are playing tricks on me. Back standing at the top of the windy drainage, scanning below with my binoculars, I'm really hoping we'll see a condor at this nest site. Every rock and bush I spot looks like a bird. You'd be surprised what looks like a condor yeah. when you're looking for a condor. You'll yeah. like, yeah, you'll be like staring at a hillside and you're like, that is definitely a condor. And then you're like, that's a shrub. That's a shrub. Yeah. The light changes and you're like, ugh. You're like, oh yes, I finally found it. Mm -hmm. It's a pine cone or <laughs> it's a the shadow. shadow. So many shadows look like condors. Oh, there is a condor actually sticking <gasps> its head yeah, out. There's oh. a condor sticking its head out. It's happening. Oh my God. I squint through my binoculars, and sure enough, there it is. A massive condor has waddled out from under the rock, and it's stretching its wings out. Laura and Ariana are as thrilled as I am. Guys, we saw something. We saw something. Oh, that's the male. Oh, it has a blue tag. They number all the birds when they tag them, and Ariana and Laura know each of them. This boulder, just resting there on a precarious slope, is the nest site of condors 328 and 216. Condors mate for life. This pair has been together for 12 years so far. And they're soon to be parents. And this is key, because every single chick counts. Even when they're protected, condor numbers don't just spring back, because they reproduce very, very slowly. This pair will only have one chick, every other year. We can't see it from where we're standing, but 328 and 216 have an egg in this nest right now, and Ariana knows it very well. The week before we came out here, she had visited the nest to check the health of the egg. The eggs are actually heavier than, than you think they would be. Like if you think of a chicken egg, you're like, oh yeah, this is light, but condor's eggs are like one to two pounds, I think. Whoa. They're pretty heavy for an egg. The average condor egg weighs about half a pound, but despite its size and weight, the egg is a vulnerable treasure. You know, I'm crouching down, trying to get as, like sitting down, trying to get as close to the egg as possible and working really gently to cradle it in my hands and bring it closely to me. Ariana carefully picks up the egg and mum and dad are standing right there, not far away. The pressure is high. And I'm doing this all in a contractor bag. Yeah, on top of that, Ariana is wrapped up in a big black garbage bag. It needs to be dark to get a good look at the egg. 
just trying to grab an egg half covered and bring it close to me and then and then you shine a light into it and yeah put a flashlight up to it and then based on the progression of the development of the, the fetus and the embryo and the network of arteries and veins you can tell how old it is it's called candling the egg holding a light to the shell like this ariana has to be careful the egg is the future of this endangered species. You're sitting on the edge of a cliff in a trash bag and it's hot and you're trying to just gingerly pick up the egg and candle it. And when you see that it is viable, that it is going to be granted nothing else happens, that it's going to be growing into the largest flying land bird of North America and one of 300 it adds a lot of pressure and you're trying just to set it back down and not shake while you're putting it back down onto just a, a pile of dirt <laughs> in a nest. The condors are lucky to have such careful stewards like Ariana and Laura to watch over them. It's working, but they know they're only a part of a huge ongoing effort. I think there's a long ways to go and I think until we deal with the lead issue, it's going to be hard to have the condor kind of fly on its own. After the break, we'll meet a man who turned from crime to condors and a life mission to remove lead from this incredible bird's ecosystem. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. And that's elk. Oh, it is. This is elk. elk from yes, that's the elk from Jackson. That's we're gonna have burgers with that. This is Anthony Prieto. I'm at his house with him and his sons in the mountains just outside Santa Barbara, California. He's grilling up some elk burgers. Oh, these are gonna be. <clears throat> the patties are sizzling on a little Weber grill in his driveway, and they smell delicious. I've been looking forward to this day for a while. I met Anthony a few years ago and heard just snippets of his story. Now I'm here to hear the rest. He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. Anthony's an avid hunter, and the elk he's grilling was shot by his son on their recent hunting trip to Wyoming using non-lead ammo. This is what you do. This is why you bless the animals. It'll help to nourish the others that can't do what we do. That's, that's, part of, that's a huge part of the reward is you guys get to experience this. You know, if you can't get out to Jackson Hole and chase elk, we'll chase them for you, and then we'll bless you. Anthony loves wildlife and sees his role as a hunter in a very spiritual and connected way. It's such a lost connection to, to earth, and so to live where we live now, to grow our own vegetables, to still hunt and harvest our wild game for my boys to really, really understand and appreciate wow this is where it comes from dad he's become an advocate for removing lead from the condor's environment 
It was his grandfather Leo who taught him about hunting. He was an immigrant from Michoacan, Mexico, who loved nature and knew how good it could be for young people. But by the time Anthony was old enough to actually go on a hunt, his grandfather was too old. So he arranged for Anthony to hunt with some church friends. It took him a moment to figure out what he was doing. And was it a steep learning curve getting into getting Yeah, into the hunting? first time I put on a backpack, because you're supposed to put on a backpack, which I didn't know, to put your knives and your saws. And <laughs> I put on the backpack and everything fell out because I put it on backwards. <laughs> My friend goes, oh, God. He stuck with it, though, and got hooked on the hunting life. Anthony also remembers his grandfather telling wonderful stories of the flying giants that flew in the skies around California's Topatopa Mountains, near where Anthony was born. It was 1967, and the condors were in trouble, the year they were put on the endangered species list. Something had to be done to save the species, so the first wild-born condor was captured to start a breeding program at the LA Zoo. The bird was given a name, Topatopa. Anthony was five years old and remembers hearing about this pioneering condor from his grandfather. I remember sitting on his lap and go, what's a condor? I never heard the word. It was just a really big prehistoric looking bird that still lives up here. They caught one. And I go, where's it at? And he goes, I think it's at the zoo now. I go, so I could see like a live dinosaur condor? <laughs> But as an important breeding male, Topatopa wasn't on display at the LA Zoo. Anthony would have to wait to see Topatopa. It didn't matter, though. His obsession had hatched. As condor numbers were crashing in the wild, Anthony's childhood was moving fast. It was now 1978, he's 17, and going through some troubling times. He'd become wrapped up in gang life. Well, I got into the gang just being Chicano. Um... It was just a really intriguing subculture that I was attracted to because my cousins in L.A. were involved in gangs. And it was just glamorized down there. It was life and death. But as an athlete, I knew I wasn't going to go too far in sports. As a gangster, I think I could go a little farther. As a young Latino, an impressionable teenager, the gang life was irresistible. And then, you know, the peer pressure, the notoriety, and the power and prestige that you get with that lifestyle. It just perpetuates as you do more and more bad things. Anthony had joined the Vario Hoods gang in Santa Barbara. He was nicknamed Little Spider. There was an older guy in our neighborhood named Spider, so they called me Little Spider. Yeah, I mean, so physically active, we'd train together, we'd box, we'd lift weights, and we were in the best shape of our life, 17, 18, 19. But then we got to use that on the streets. And when you get the respect level, that was where, you know, it was like everybody moved out of our way. Nobody said a word. And it was we could go wherever we want, do whatever we want, with whoever we want. That power that you get with that, it just strokes your ego because we're all insecure people at some point to some degree. 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old male with an ego inflated, (laughs) thinking you're bulletproof. That was the attraction. His dad was concerned, so to try and get him going in the right direction, he bought Anthony a hunting rifle to encourage the hunting Anthony had enjoyed and maybe steer him away from the trouble that he was getting into with the gang. But he said, please do not use these on people because he knew what I was involved in. Like, I won't, Dad. I won't. I won't. 
so I didn't. But Anthony's love for condors never left him, like something he couldn't shake. Even while he's out on the streets with the gang, the condors are never far from his mind. His friends, the other gang members, would make fun of him for it. Why you like that ugly bird? I go, it's just a cool bird. It's just, it's prehistoric. I was different, you know. My friends were just like, I don't get it, Anthony. <laughs> One day, he's in high school and hears that the captive condor, Topa Topa, is finally on display at the LA Zoo. And he wasn't going to miss out on his chance to see his real-life dinosaur bird. I remember I ditched school that day, drove down to L.A. with one of my homeboys, and it was a drizzly day. Nobody was at the zoo, but the zoo was open. (laughs) And went right to his display, and I sat there for about a half hour and just watched him. Topa Topa kind of solidified things for him. But Anthony just wanted to learn more, so he visited the Museum of Natural History in Santa Barbara. He told me the woman at the Condor exhibit was kind of surprised to see him. This young, tough-looking guy with slicked-back hair. And I walked in, you know, all dressed how I dressed. How were you dressed? Why was she oh, surprised? I, was just, I remember my khakis, my Pendleton, just dressed in my hard shoes and just walked in. And she didn't know what I was there for. But when I started talking condors, that was her language. The woman could see that he was serious. So she invited Anthony to a presentation about the captive breeding program so that he could learn more. She says, some of the current condor wild biologists are going to be there. You can meet them. Hmm. Then she introduced me to the crew afterwards. And I asked straight out, how can I help? Oh, you want to volunteer? Yeah. (laughs) That's all I had to do was ask. (laughs) It was a different mindset. He volunteered his time to help however he could, monitored condor flights, helped nurse sick birds, and became friends with the condor biologists, including the lady from the museum. Anthony remembers when he first learned what was killing condors. It was 1983, and a very sick radio-tagged condor was found. And lo and behold, that bird unfortunately died. Mortality signals revealed that it was probably dead. They were able to retrieve the bird, and upon doing the necropsy, the autopsy, it had high levels of lead. The light went on. That was it. Oh, that's what they're dying from. There weren't many solutions at the time, but Anthony was committed to doing whatever he had to do to protect condors, to keep them from eating lead. So when I first started hunting with those guys, I'd tell those guys, bury the gut pile. By then there were like three condors left on the planet. Well, there's no condors. I go, just bury it anyway. Just bury it. There's so the condors other can't get to it. Condors and whatever else eats it, they won't die. Man, but Anthony, it's like two in the morning, man. Just do it. I would do it. I would stay behind and do it. But it was years later before he heard about a possible solution to the lead issue. In 1997, a friend of mine that I had started hunting with, he said, Anthony, I found a non-lead round of ammunition. Let's try it. Yeah, let's try it. He took some of this ammo, made with copper instead of lead, down to the shooting range. The bullets are less dense, so they shot a bit higher, but a few simple scope adjustments corrected that. This is it, he thought. Copper is the solution. But other hunters were sceptical. They thought copper ammo wasn't powerful enough, couldn't take down a large animal. But our big test was going to Montana. Out in the mountains of Montana, Anthony comes across a herd of elk. They got spooked as he approached and quickly took flight. I ran as fast as I could. 
I was able to get a shot off and I had a good rest and it was like about a 300 yard shot. And before that animal hit the ground, this is a 800 pound elk, it was dead. And I'm like, wow, it worked. And copper doesn't fragment like lead, so the kill is cleaner, more humane. But most importantly, there's no lead left behind. It was the proof he needed. Immediately, he sets out on a path to educate other hunters. He had the credibility, could speak Spanish to Latino hunters, and he had no problem walking up to people in the field who were holding guns, in a way that some condor biologists might not have been comfortable with. So this is a... 300 Winchester mag, a 24-inch barrel. Anthony shows me some of the copper ammunition. Bolt action. And there's actually nothing inside the chamber, but you always do this to check. Mm -hmm. Here's a, some non-lead ammo that is hand-loaded for us. And, and looking at that, does it look any different to what a lead ammunition no. bullet would? No, it looks nothing. the same. Literally identical. It's all he uses these days. Even so, preaching the gospel of copper bullets isn't easy. Not all hunters are as excited as Anthony about switching. Some see them as unwanted government regulation, and copper is more expensive. I always tell them, just don't buy a 12-pack of beer and don't buy three bags of chips. There's your $20 <laughs> difference from lead to non-lead. That's it. Really? That's it. When he chats to hunters who don't want to stop using lead, Anthony's careful to be diplomatic. But he's clear, too. Everybody has a different viewpoint, and you have to respect that. So mm -hmm. when somebody says, no, I'm not going to shoot copper, it's too expensive, I'm going to shoot lead, mm -hmm. my response is, well, then just bury the gut pile if you can. Mm -hmm. But just know that you're inadvertently feeding your loved one's lead fragments from your bullet. He reminds hunters that it's not just condors that eat the lead, but also the hunter's family when they put meat on the table. It took time, but in July 2019, Anthony and his many Condor colleagues enjoyed an incredible win. The state of California banned the use of lead ammunition for hunting. But he says, like any law, people break it all the time. So Condors are still dying, and there's still work to be done. Condors have always been with Anthony. He loves these birds. He has a tattoo of a flying condor that stretches down his arm. He sketches and paints them. This bird has fueled him along his path. In 1999, a month after his grandfather Leo passed away, Anthony got the opportunity to be part of something very special, the release of a condor back into the wild. What was it? Can you describe that? No words. <laughs> I remember the sky was blue. This big, giant bird with those wingtips, you know, like fingers, like you mentioned, with the white triangular white patches with that orange head looking down at me. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
What's your dream for the future of, of the California condor? That it one day will not need human intervention to help it succeed in the wild. We won't have to put nest cams. We won't have to put out carcasses. We won't have to put out transmitters or GPS units. We won't have to trap the birds biannually and do blood work to see if their levels of lead are going to be okay or not. Hands free. Yeah. Hands free. And he turns his attention to the next generation, mentoring youth and young hunters, including his own sons, to help them be the change that condors need to survive. He thinks back to his own youth a lot and the turmoil. He told me you can never get out of the gang. You, you can't just walk away. But he tries to explain to people he wants to be an example of turning negative into positive. I'd love to understand, was that a part of your journey in life? Or did condors pull you out of something kind of thing that you didn't want to be in anymore? You know, I've never looked at it that way, but that is true, Chris. They did pull me out of because I'm so focused on what I need to do while I'm still alive with wildlife conservation. Anthony has now been involved for 44 years. And amazingly, so many of the characters are still a part of his life, including Topa Topa, the first flying dinosaur condor from his childhood at the LA Zoo in 1967. Topa Topa is now 55 years old, the oldest living California condor, and has produced 34 chicks, the most prolific breeder in the program. And while he's teaching about the condors he loves, Anthony is still learning from them too. Well, what have these birds taught you? Uh, I'd say this to my children, on occasion, when life situations get them so stirred up, or even myself, but them, where they get so flustered. And I've said it, like the condor, what does it do when it's in trouble? Just rise above it, rise above it, rise, hit the thermal and just get higher and higher and higher. And once you hit that thermal, do that wing tuck and move on. If you'd like to hear more about Anthony's work, he's produced two documentary films about his fight against lead ammo, and you can find out more at our website, thewildpod.org. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Be sure to check out our Instagram account at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. 
A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Bob Yellerlees, and Paul Lister. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Cara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. Take good care. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.